Many of you uh, who have been here all this last year. Oh, take this away, John. It's probably in your way. There. There you go. Who have been here for a year now, I think. Uh, know John from morning class. And from those, for those of you who do not, uh, I just want to remind you, or those of you who weren't here that particular day, what, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, something like that. Eight weeks ago, somewhere in the middle of class, or maybe when we were sharing blessings, or maybe at the end, John said, you know, I'm not going to be here for a little while because I'm going to Greece to help with a, 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 a arriving refugees. And he said, you know, I was reading in the news and seeing in the news pictures of the boats coming and people turning over. And she, he said, I couldn't not go, so I'm going. And he went, and he'll talk to us about it. And I want to put it only in the context that just of that moment, because everybody, you know how we did it, oh, about the baby. Everybody did, oh, about John going, because everybody in their heart would have been John going, I think. But everybody in their life couldn't have been John going. The thing that he would, I thought of it. I thought, oh, maybe John will, and I could go also. And then I thought, no, no, way too old. You know, they need able-bodied people. Uh, but then I thought, you know, in a sense, we all go with him when he went because we are part of the context. You also said in that day that since you've been here for this year, you thought that that had a part in your going which means that we all went with him. We were all a part of his going. And while you were gone, and we all thought about you, we were there with you. So in a sense, uh, it's a special pleasure and privilege. And I wanted uh, Donald to be here because, first of all, he knew about it, and he knows you. And second of all, uh, Donald, uh, amongst all of our teachers here, has long had uh, a public interest in uh, uh, social activism as an expression of wisdom. So, yeah, I think it. We can go back to that very simple way that I framed the nature of our practice in the introductory instructions, which is that the real purpose of our practice isn't so much to have calm or peace per se, but it's to develop the kind heart <clears throat> and wisdom that can be responsive moment to moment. And I think it's that responsiveness moment to moment, which is the, that's the real aim of our practice. That calm and peace make possible at times a skillful response. And it's that skillful response moment to moment. And that response sometimes is towards ourself. How am I doing? I'm uh, feeling some distress about what happened. What would be skillful response to my own uh, being right now? And it might be, oh, skillful response is to take myself out to lunch. That could be skillful response. Or it might be to watch that uh, repetitive mind that's judging myself. Right? That would be skillful response. And sometimes the skillful response is more outer. You know, it's more the skillful response is to help someone in need. Like go to Greece. Like go to Greece, or to be let the qualities of uh, kindness and wisdom be there at, at work, at one's work, in relationship, in, in the larger world. 
And I think that, that having that larger framing and also knowing that at times our practice can sort of be channeled in a more, uh, in a way that's more just with ourselves. Sometimes we need a little bit of effort to bring that practice out for others or to bring it out into the world. And so I think that sense of responsiveness is certainly what I hear with uh, John's story, with, with really very much a, a deep response to something that we all know and his life circumstances made it possible to go. And so I think I wanted really just to invite John to initially tell his story, talk about his own inner process, what occurred, the changes, the developments, and uh, maybe, uh, and then we could, might have some time for larger discussion or for questions. And uh, just to say that I was, uh, I was continually moved getting the emails during the time that John was there. How many of you also received those? Right, so wasn't that powerful? Yeah, and the, the videos, the stories, the firsthand. So really to invite John to uh, talk, maybe about, talk about the whole process, including what led you to decide to go there. Yeah, yeah, let's... Uh, oh, here, take mine. Well, that will work, that will work. Yeah, yeah, then. We each can have it. Okay. Thank you. Can you hear me? Okay. First of all, I would like to thank uh, Sylvia especially for um, giving me the opportunity um, eight weeks ago to mention my upcoming trip and uh, for encouraging me and for inviting me back here today. And thank Donald also for so a couple of weeks ago he said, are you going to show any photographs? Uh, when you present and I said no I don't think so I'm just going to talk and he encouraged me to show some of the photographs or video clips that I took when I was in Greece and so I'm going to be doing that in a, in a few minutes um, but I also want to thank all of you um, for your support and your love and the comments that I received from some of you while I was in Greece really helped me during very difficult times. And for those of you who donated to the fund, um, just incredible amount of money that was raised to, went directly to the refugees. So, and then those who just held me in your thoughts and your hearts, um, I really felt that when I was over there. So I wanna thank all of you uh, for that. Um, the question I get asked the most, I think, is, well, why did you decide to go to Greece to work with the refugees? What led you to? I mean, not everybody just picks up and leaves and goes across the, the world. And um, I think part of it, I mentioned a number of weeks ago, I think, um, and, and I really believe that, there's something in my DNA. Um, my grandfather, and I'm from, from Korea, um, Korean, my, my grandfather was a Korean minister and back in the 1930s he lived in Korea and Korea was occupied by the Japanese from early 1900s till the end of World War II and it was a very brutal occupation 
And uh, especially since he was a Christian minister, he was um, persecuted. Um, and um, so he had to leave Korea, he and my grandmother, um, because of circumstances. And um, he went to China, to Shanghai. So that was the first instance that I know of somewhere in my family, someone leaving um, danger and persecution and going to somewhere safe. And I was born in 1948 in Shanghai. Um, and my, um, my, my father and mother had moved also to, to Shanghai uh, at that point. And in 1948, China was in the middle of a civil war between the, the communists and the nationalists. And um, um, in 1949, when I was just a year old, um, the communists were approaching Shanghai and it was pretty much uh, expected that they would defeat the nationalists. So my mother and father and seven of us children uh, fled Shanghai and went to Hong Kong, which is a British colony at that point. And so here was another example um, closer to me in terms of family having to leave. Oh, and, and I was born in March and Shanghai fell to the communists in May. Okay, so we got out two months before. So, um, but that wasn't in my consciousness when I decided to go. It was, it was my wife who kind of reminded me, well, didn't your family have to leave, you know, under difficult circumstances? And, um, you know, I believe that we carry certain things from our ancestors. I don't know how far back, but it's, it's in us. And I think Sylvia mentioned at that time uh, about a couple of months ago, you know, how many of you have had, have ancestors or relatives or somebody in your past who have had to flee danger or to go to another country to make a new life, to um, seek a better life and so on. And there were so many people who raised their hands. Um, so, yeah, how many of you have someone in your family, someone in your background, yeah, look at this. Yeah, probably half or two-thirds of you. It's probably very common. And that's been the history of civilization. People having to flee, having to move, going from one country to the other because of war, because of famine, persecution, religious, um, for whatever reason, there have been, always been refugees going from one place to the other. And so what's happening in the Middle East now and in Europe, it's nothing new. It's part of this pattern that's been going on for thousands of years. Um, so that was one part of it. The other part was um, I had gone through a particularly difficult and challenging year. Um, and as a result, I had to c confront some issues in my childhood and relationship to my parents and things that a lot of us do. And um, through coming here to Spirit Rock on Monday nights and Wednesday mornings, um, doing the mindfulness work, the meta work, uh, doing some work with Donald personally and with my therapist and so on, it was a challenging time. And around between November and Christmas, of last year, 
um, something shifted after all that work and uh, you might call it awakening, you might call it becoming in touch with your true nature. Um, I don't know what the terms, but there was a shift and, and also, by the way, listening to podcasts from Tara Brock. She's just incredible, really helped me a lot. Um, that's when I started thinking about the refugees. Because if you recall, around November, October, November, last fall, was the huge migration of refugees to, to Europe, to Germany, and so on. And that's when we saw all these images in the, in, the, in, the, in the press, in the newspaper, and TV, and so on. And I remember thinking at Thanksgiving time, why am I so lucky? And, and why are all these millions of people just suffering so much? And, um, you know, here we have a roof over our heads. We've got all the food we want to eat. We don't have to worry about survival, where our next meal's going to come from, about the bombs landing near us. And I remember thinking, um, you know, we only live once as far as I know, <laughs> and why in all, you know, the thousands of years of civilization were we born at this particular time in this country under these circumstances, and we are so <coughs> fortunate. We don't even have to think about eating, unless it's eating too much, but we don't have to think about, you know, uh, hunger, poverty, etc. And those thoughts came around Thanksgiving time and being kind of thankful just in what we do with our lives when we have all the stuff that we have, everything that we need. And that coupled with this kind of awakening of the heart and seeing the refugees, I just said, I've got, I have to do something. I've got to go over there. Um, I've always been a compassionate person, I, I feel, and people who know me have said that. My entire career has been a special educator working with children with disabilities, 35 years. Um, and then when I retired like six years ago, I was like very foolish and I started volunteering with like seven agencies. <laughs> Make-A-Wish Foundation, I helped at the homeless shelter serving meals, I worked at the Sonoma County Jail helping inmates and their families, um, I did things with youth sports. So I've always had that, I think, streak of compassion, but this is a different kind of compassion after doing all this work and meditating and mindfulness and metta. Um, it's, there's a deeper compassion. I can't really describe it, but it's, I think there are levels of compassion. You can be compassionate and do things for others, but this was a whole different kind of compassion where I just felt, felt it more, and I would cry, um, tears would come to my eyes, and, um, 
And, and I think that was really due to all this work that I've been talking about. So that's a little bit of the background of, of um, going to Greece. And now I'm going to just take a minute to set up the, the um, oops, Donald, can you? Okay, if you can just turn that, turn on that, um, thank you. Turn off the lights now because it's please. I'm going to um, a minute here. Like to tell some jokes, or <laughs> <laughs> okay. it was working earlier, so it will. Com computers sometimes get a little nervous. I look at that uh, little Microsoft thing going around, around, around. I think it's thinking. You know, it heard the command, but it's thinking. Okay. Right, there it's gonna work. I saw something that said running auto scan. So uh -huh. maybe some scanning program is interfering with it, I don't know. Let's try clicking that again. Mm -hmm. 
That looks very promising. See, it's thinking again, that little <laughs> thinking. That's the wheel of samsara. <laughs> <laughs> says slide one of 20, five. It will work. I've learned before this meditative work and so on, I would be all upset, but now I'm just real calm. It's, like, it's gonna work. I think everybody else here is too, because I think one of the main things one develops is patience. Is it showing on your screen? Is it doing uh, not yet. It's still. You know, you're they're, they're, they're now it's going to start. There we go. Okay. I, I, I think it's important just to have a little bit of background and context of what the refugees have gone through and where they are, etc. But um, of course, here's Syria and Iraq and Iran. Afghanistan's over here. Here's Turkey. And here's Greece. And uh, the journey is going through Greece and through Macedonia, through Serbia, Romania, Croatia, Hungary, Austria, and ultimately trying to get to Germany, where many of them have gone to. Poland, some of them Denmark, some of them are in Sweden, some in the United Kingdom, France, and Spain. So you can see this, this migration starting here. And I'm going to be primarily focusing on the Syrians, um, although that many of the refugees are also from Iraq and in Afghanistan. Um, and this is Greece. Oh, I just went too far. Okay, this is Greece. Here's Athens. This is the island of Lesvos that you, many of you heard about. Uh, and there's other islands, Chios, Samos, and so on, that are close. And you can see how close uh, Lesvos is to Turkey. This is about five miles or so. And that's where millions have gotten on these little boats and gone across to the island of Lesvos, um, Athens. Later on, I ended up here right at the border called Idomeni, a little town that nobody even knew about until the refugees. And they're right at that border between Greece and Macedonia. Um, and the camp that I initially worked at was right there near Mytilene. So this is, that, this is the, um, the crossing that was made by so many people right here. Can you see one side from the other if it's just You can on? see. When you're on Lesbos, you can see Turkey. It's so close. This next video clip is a short video clip that talks about the horrors of the war in Syria. I really debated whether I should show it or not. 
um, because it's pretty graph. There's certain graphic scenes, and if you're uncomfortable, just close your eyes or leave. But I think it's important to get a sense of what these people are fleeing from and what they've had to go through just to get to where they are today. So. Um, I'm sorry, this is... Well, there is sound, but I don't know. It's not. Oh, here. I'm sorry. This is when Assad, the president, used chemical warfare.
I'm going to um, try and work out the sound here because it's um, This next short video clip is a very, um, it's a very instructive one. It, it, there's a French journalist who was able to convince the smugglers to get on one of the boats between Turkey and Lesbos. And it gives you a real sense of the fear and what, the, what they had to go through just to make that trip, like five mile trip across the uh, Aegean Sea. And because um, that's the only way the refugees have been able to get over to Europe is to make that little trip across from Turkey to one of the Greek islands. Um. It was difficult, but French journalist Franck Genozol managed to convince smugglers to let him embark on a dangerous trip. We left maybe 10 minutes ago, and we've been going along the Turkish coast to an unknown destination where we'll probably be picking up dozens of migrants. Smugglers have warned us to hide here inside the boat so no one can spot us. Somewhere along the coast, the boat stops. The captain tells the migrants it's safe for them to get on. His fellow smugglers escort dozens of Syrian and Iraqi refugees who had been hiding in bushes for the past 24 hours. Families with children are allowed to be the first to step on the boat. All are extremely nervous. Many can't swim. 20 terrified children wear life jackets much too big for them. The youngest passenger on board is a baby barely two months old. His parents will hold him tight throughout what will be an ordeal they'll never forget. The migrants help each other. Solidarity will be key on this journey. A Syrian man known as Ibra shares his excitement with the French journalist. I feel, I feel so amazed. But uh, I don't know my family there. I feel it's I don't if they came or they didn't come here. The smugglers order Ibra to get off and help push the boat. Others are told to join efforts or else they won't leave. One of the smugglers waves a gun to show who's in charge and who must obey. The boat can finally sail off, but without the captain. The smuggler will take no more risks. He randomly picks a migrant with no experience to replace him and he jumps off. The smugglers congratulate each other. They're on land, and whatever happens to the migrants from now on is not their business. They have their money, their job is over. 
One Iraqi man struggles to reach the boat where his wife and children found a seat. Exhausted, he finally manages to get on. The journey can begin. The boat is heading to the Greek island of Lesbos, some 10 kilometers away. Many pray. They all know they're risking their lives. But no one on board feels safe. I've told the captain to not go too fast. It's better to go slowly if it means arriving safely there. The sea is beautiful, but the boat's engine doesn't work well. Sixty people are crammed onto this old wooden boat. Two thousand euros per adult, one thousand per child. That's what it cost them to be allowed on. The smoke coming out of the worn-out engine and the smell of petrol are unbearable. Night falls, making the journey even more dangerous. With no lights, the boat will have to navigate in the Aegean Sea, hoping to avoid cargo ships that could crush them any time. Suddenly, the engine stops working. After a short prayer, the migrants look at each other in despair. The engine has stopped. We're about two or three kilometers away from the Turkish coast. There's practically no light apart from the one on our camera, and there are no boats in sight. For the time being, we're stuck here. The migrants have plunged into darkness with the only light coming from a few mobile phones. They blow the whistles on their life jackets in a desperate attempt to be noticed and saved. Everyone, stop moving or we're going to capsize. The French journalist who carries a satellite phone calls rescue forces, giving the boat's GPS coordinates. Tell him that I called. They're going to come, but it takes time, okay? A lot of people die here, so the people are so scared about that. Shortly after the call, a small Greek fishing boat approaches. Coast guards gave the alert. Due to increasingly strong waves, the Greek fisherman is struggling to tow the migrant's boat, but he finally manages to save the group. The journey has been exhausting, traumatizing, and it's not quite over yet. After four hours at sea, the migrants finally arrive in Lesbos. The overwhelming feeling is one of relief. Oh, 
Ibra reunites with his family, who are on the other side of the boat. Still a long way to go, right? We still have a lot of uh, so long drive to go to the gym. But we do all, we, the, we do the hard to go to the work hard to go to the that perilous journey at sea is now over, but more difficulties lie ahead. The following day, it will be time to head towards Athens before traveling to Northern Europe by any possible means. Having fled their war-torn countries, they are now looking for a new place they can call home. It was difficult. I wanted you to see that just so you got a sense of, you know, the over a million refugees had to make that same trip. They didn't all experience the same kind of experience, but I can guarantee you that almost every single one, when they got on one of those boats or rafts, had fear in their hearts because they didn't know if they're going to make it. Because over a thousand refugees drowned and didn't, didn't make it. So when you think, and I remember walking around the camp at uh, Idomeni, this 10,000 people, thinking, you know, every single one of those people here, baby, child, old person, had to make this trip. That was the only way they could get over to, to Greece. And what they must have experienced as they walked on to that, and you could see it on their faces. Um, and that was just the beginning of the journey in terms of where they are today. So they, um, when they landed in Lesvos, they all had to go to a, a reception center at a place called Moria, where there was a, um, they converted a, a, a former jail or detention facility and made it into a refugee camp where they got their papers, um, uh, the transit visas and so on, so they could keep going to uh, to the rest of Europe. And they all had to register at this place. And this is where I first went to, the island of Lesbos. And this is the uh, part, of a, part of the camp. And it's all surrounded bar by fences and barbed wire. It looks like a jail, but it really isn't. But, um, and they had buildings here, which was formerly cells and so on. And I worked right up here for a few days right in that complex. But there were tents around here and tents put up by the United Nations. And it was pretty organized. They had food, they had bathrooms, showers, and so on. But most people who came here just came for a day or two, and then they went on the ferry to Athens and, to, and, and went on their journey. But when I got there, um, the borders had been closed. So uh, many of them were stuck here uh, in this facility and couldn't um, uh, go to Athens or go to the rest of Greece. This is the area that I worked for a few days. Uh, you can see the barbed wire and so on and the buildings are right here. And um, I worked in the area with families where the children and families lived together. And so uh, some of you saw this artwork that children drew. It was really kind of interesting to see 
Um, I don't know if they were asked to write, to draw pictures of their home or whatever, but a lot of the theme was on homes. And always very pretty pictures of their homes with flowers and trees and, and so on. My home, uh, I love Afghanistan and so on. And they had these pictures up on the, on the wall. Um, usually happy faces, Spongebob and so on. Um, when I was there, um, there was a, a decision made by the European Union and Turkey that some of you heard about in terms of closing the border, not allowing any more refugees to come into, into, into the European Union, uh, sending refugees back to their country of origin if they didn't apply for asylum and so on. And so the facility at Moria on um, March the 20th, um, everybody who was there had to leave and make their way on to Athens and, and, and the rest of, starting to go toward the rest of Europe because everybody who came after the 20th were not allowed to, they, they either had to seek asylum or they would be deported back to their country of origin. And so um, when I was there, that's when they started clearing out the refugees. And one particular evening, um, it was very, very empty. And I was playing with this little boy, playing games with him for about 45 minutes or so. And uh, I was showing him my cell phone, you know, little features of the cell phone. We weren't allowed to take photographs of the children in the facility. We were prohibited from doing so. Um, but I let him take pictures on my cell phone. And so this is what he took of me. <laughs> and you can see the artwork in the background there. So I decided to leave Moria because um, there weren't going to be as many refugees there as there were, and the need wasn't as great. So I decided to go to Idomeni, which was that border between the northern border between Greece and Macedonia, where about 10 to 12,000 refugees were stuck because the border had closed and there was a huge need at that point. Um, and so I flew to Athens and rented a car and drove five hours up to the northern uh, coast or northern border. And um, this is just a quick little overview of what Idomeni looks like from the air. And this was taken by a drone with a camera. And uh, you'll get a sense, because it's hard to, for me to just tell you what this refugee camp looked like. Um, so you get a sense of just the scope of, uh, of Idomeni. Beautiful farmland surrounded by hills. Yeah, these are just some refugees walking. Uh, we're serving tea here. Just all these tents just on the fields. Um, probably mostly volunteer groups donate the tents. These are some structures from the UN that are, are there. 
the United Nations area. Those are people who are fortunate, at least had shelter inside these large tents. But most people were living out in the open in these tents, portable bathrooms here. near the train station. When I was there, there weren't any trains running because the refugees just camped right on the tracks, prevented the trains from going through. This is right about where I worked uh, distributing food every day, right where that truck is. Here's the border. Here's the border walls or the fences. Okay, I'm going to move on. Um, and these are just some photographs I took at Idomeni, just walking around. You can just see some of the structures here. A little, little. Um, blanket or something with a little fence or, or um, a tent next to this tree. I wrote about this little boy on, in my post. Um, by the way, how much, what time is it now? I just want to make sure. About 10 to 11. Okay, I'm going to move quickly here. Um, as I was walking around, I noticed people selling little bits of, of firewood and um, people were dragging these firewoods, carrying them in, in their hands, um, whatever container they had. And I saw this boy um, with this piece of cloth with firewood here and he would go for a few yards and then the fire would fall out and he'd have to put them all back and he'd drag it for another 10 yards or so, and he was just struggling and struggling. Um, so I went over and offered to help him. So the two of us carried this cloth with all the firewood, quite heavy. And he had probably had about 500 meters to go. And um, I helped carry it to his, wherever his tent was. Uh, and he said, thank you in English. Um, and I was glad that I had done some weight training before I, uh, at one point he, it was too heavy for him. So I carried the whole thing um, over to his, his tent area. I joined a group um, while I was there called Hot Food Idomeni. Just a volunteer group of young people from Europe who made um, soup, hot soup every day. And, um, 
I noticed um, one morning that all these people were gathered here just chopping away. So I, asked, I said, can I help you? They said, sure. So I ended up spending the rest of my time every morning from about 8.30 till 1 o'clock chopping carrots, onions, garlic, you know. Can you imagine chopping away for like four hours? Um, and there's about 20 of us. We put these um, boxes up with, uh, with the cutting boards and we would just chop away. In this tent, they had burners here and they would make the soup in, in this tent here. And here I am. And these are these huge pots. It'd be like 120 degrees in there. It was so hot. It can only last for about five minutes and then you have to take a break. You have to keep stirring the soup. And then they would take these um, containers of soup, probably weighed a couple hundred pounds. And they, they would have to put it on the back of a, a truck and then drive about 20 minutes to Idomeni where we would um, set up the distribution. As soon as we drove in, the line started forming. As soon as we started distributing the soup, usually with pita bread, a hard-boiled egg, the line would just go so far you couldn't see the end of the line. And people would stand literally for an hour or more just to get this little cup of soup uh, and, a, and a piece of bread. And um, it was, it was a quite an incredible experience um, to be a part of this group of, I was the old, oldest one there, mostly young people. And people would just be helping out, just chopping away, doing whatever was needed. It took us about three hours to distribute the soup. And so it'd be about five o'clock by the time we ended. So that was my day, from 8.30 till about 5, just serving, preparing, serving food. Um, and one day when I was there um, serving, it was raining. And these poor people were in line in the rain for an hour or more getting soaked. And as I wrote in my blog, I remember I was serving the soup. And I noticed, you know, there's only a little bit left, probably for 20 people, and this line still stretched. People standing in the rain. Um, and, you know, just tears came to my eyes. Um, wondering, well, where are they going to eat? What's going to happen? And when it rains there, it just turns into just this whole sea of water and mud it's the most depressing kind of sight you can imagine, people living in these little tents. You know, we've done it in camping maybe for one day or something, but this is, it's, it's, um... Do they get any one meal a day, John? Well, they get, they, they, there's other groups serving meals, so they could go to another line, or the United Nations serves some meals, but we were about the only group that was, um, at that time, was serving hot meals. Everything else was, you know, bread and, and, and cold meals and so on. Um, I'm just going to show you just a quick look. <laughs> Thank you. 
that's kind of what it looks like in the rain. The next day after this was shot, or not the next day, a few days later, the wind started blowing. This is what happened to the tents. I'm not going to show the rest of it because of the time, but um, <coughs> while I was there after the rain, the next day the sun came out and I wrote about this in the blog, how just everything got transformed. It was like once the sun came out, things were still ugly, but the children just came out and played and they were just full of life as children can be even in the worst of conditions. And here are some um, European volunteers leading them through a little dance. Just look at the joy in their faces and their laughter and so on. Oops, sorry. Um. <laughs> Then someone had set up a, um, a trampoline, this group from Nether Netherlands. Little trampolines, and these kids were in line, and they got a chance to jump up and down, and they were laughing. And Here's some photographs of people just doing what they normally do or trying to live a normal life under very, very difficult conditions. Uh, barber uh, a little barber here, a woman is cooking, there's a sewing machine, someone, a, a volunteer group had set up, um, washing a little baby in a tub. last few minutes I have, I want to just talk to you about um, kind of a change that occurred to me near the end of my trip. Um, I had been spending so much of my time and energy trying to help as many people as I could. So doing all that chopping of vegetables, serving of the soup, and so on. Um, maybe about five days before I left, um, this man here, I was walking along, and this man, Khalid, just ran up to me, and he didn't speak English, I didn't speak Arabic, but gesturing that he needed, asked if I had a adapter for his phone, for his cell phone. So I tried the one that I had, and it didn't work because I had an iPhone and he has an Android. So I told him, I'll be back tomorrow, and I'll try and get you one. So I came back the next day, I found one at the store, and brought it back, and it worked. And he was so happy, um, he became my friend. Um, and then a few days later, I was walking around at, at, in the evening, and there he is again. He invited me to his campsite where they had a fire going, offered me some tea, and we we're talking, and 
not talking, gesturing and, and trying to communicate. And uh, I was sitting on this black chair, it's like a leather chair, very comfortable lounge chair. There were two of them. And I wondered how in the world did he get this into, into this camp? Where did it come from? He didn't carry it from Syria. Um, he must have gotten it somehow. And, uh, and so I wrote about that in my blog. A couple weeks ago, I'm looking at Facebook as I keep in touch with all the various groups and so on. And someone had taken pictures, just random pictures of the camp. And there's the chair. <laughs> See right there? And that's Khalid's tent. That's where we sat around this fire. Just kind of randomly uh, coincidence. Um, this person here told me about how he was on the boat and he was picked to steer the boat. He had never been on a boat before or steered, and he was selected to steer the boat. And he, of course, he told me how frightening it was. And I said, how did you manage? And he said, well, I had my phone and I had GPS. And he also said, um, because I used to play uh, on PlayStation games. So he was able to um, navigate the boat somehow. Um, that was Motana. And then um, I want to talk to you for a few minutes about Anas. Anas is a 22-year-old uh, university student. Uh, he's a very, very good soccer player um, in, in Syria. His father was killed by ISIS. Um, he was captured and tortured, and I wrote about how they um, took his thumbnail off. And he showed me his thumb, there's no nail there. The most pleasant, wonderful young man, just so um, demonstrative. He's the one that dragged me to his tent and put his arm through my arm, and we're walking through the, the camp. And I wrote about how uncomfortable I was, like walking with a man arm in arm. I'm not used to that. But he was very comfortable, just dragging me along, took me to his tent, and um, offered me Coke, some crackers, just wonderful. He and his um, friend, who occupied this little tent, um, I was playing him some music from my son, on this little, I took this with me, this, this little speaker, and we're playing some music that my son had composed. He's a rapper, not a Christmas rapper, <laughs> but a, a rapper. Um, and they were enjoying, we're having a really good time. And I took out my phone, I said, and I thought, oh, Google Maps has a 3D feature, satellite feature where you can actually see homes and so on. So I had them pick out, show me exactly where their house was on this, on this phone using Google Maps. And they showed me the exact home. And I was just like, just amazed. I would have never thought I'd be in this tent with these, these guys, these refugees. And they're showing me their home back in Syria. Later on, I didn't write about this, but I thought, what a stupid thing to do. It's like the judgmental mind. I was like critical of myself. It's like, 
they probably saw their home in that picture and they probably the home was no longer there or there's so many bad memories of having to leave their home, etc. So I was kind of judgmental of myself of having to put through put them through that kind of experience of looking at their home on the phone, but um, Hopefully, it did bring back some some pleasant memories for them. And I'm just going to end with um, a story of uh, Khalid. This is Khalid, the man who I, I bought the um, charger for, his wife and his little boy. And um, this is my favorite story. Um, two nights before I left, I saw Khalid and he asked me, uh, he showed me his stroller. He had this nice stroller, big one with a big wheel in the front and the wheel was flat. And he asked me, um, could I help fix the flat? So we tried to fix it. I couldn't get, we couldn't get the, 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 uh, the wheel, the tire off the rim. I said, I'll get some tools, I'll be back tomorrow. He also asked me if I could exchange some shoes I had bought for his son. They were too big and he wanted sandals. So the next day, which was my last day in Idomeni, I said, I'm going to get this tire fixed and I'm going to get the sandals for his kid. And so that was my goal. I went to work that morning, chopped vegetables for a couple of hours, and um, I went into town to the shoe store. It was closed. Then I um, decided at that point, well, I got, I got a roll of duct tape and an adjustable wrench. As I drove into, you know, many, which is 25 minutes, there was a demonstration going on, and I couldn't get through the highway. So I had to drive all the way back to the town, another 25 minutes. I had to go back way through some country roads, which was about 30 minutes. And I got to Khalid's tent, and he had somehow he'd taken the tire off, the, um, the wheel off the, 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 um, the stroller. We tried to get the, the tire off. We couldn't get it off um, to try and fix the leak. So I said, I'll take the tire with me, go back into town, and I'll try and fix it. Um, and so I drove back to town, another 25 minutes. I got there at 2.10 and finally found a bike shop. All the stores are closed. They close from 2 to 5 o'clock every afternoon. So I said, well, I'm not going to sit around here for three hours. So I, Drove back to the, t to the camp, <coughs> another 25 minutes, helped distribute the soup, and around 5 o'clock I drove back to the town, another 25 minutes. The shoe store was open. I went in there, I said, do you have a size 22 sandals? <coughs> she opens the closet, there are all these boxes of shoes. She went through every single one trying to find one. Finally, the next to the last box she gets to the bottom, she finds a pair of sandals, size 22. 
That's right here. He's wearing them right here. So I'm, I'm really happy. I go to the bike shop, show him the, the tire, and he says, he can fix it, come back in 30 minutes. So I come back in 30 minutes, and it's fixed. And I said, how much do I owe you? And he said, nothing. He said, something to effect of, I don't do this for you. I don't do it for me. I do it for goodness. In his uh, broken English, this Greek Greek uh, proprietor. And I said, you know, I, this is for a refugee family in Edomini. He says, I know. I know. So that really uh, warmed my heart. Um, and so then I drive back another 25 minutes. By this time it's like dusk or so. I'm as happy as can be. <laughs> I was almost jumping up and down. I had gotten the sandals. I had gotten the tire fixed. And I'm leaving tomorrow. And I came back to Khalid and I threw him the tire. You know, bounced up and you know. And he was as happy as can be. This is his wife, a beautiful woman. Um, and here I am with his son. Uh, and then the next morning I left um, Idomeni. But that evening I just walked around the camp and I took this last picture on my camera as the sun was setting behind these hills. It shows the, the beauty, the beauty and the ugliness um, is captured in, in the scene. Um, so I just want to say that um, this was a, an eye-opener of a trip. Eye-opener in the sense that um, I knew about the refugees, I knew about their trip across the water, I knew about the, 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 the suffering and so on, but it was really more at an intellectual level. Um, until I actually got there and interacted um, with the refugees and actually saw with my own eyes. You know, folks, it's a whole different world. There's another whole world out there that we're not even aware of, unless you've been to parts of the world where it's extreme poverty and so on. Um, unless you're actually there and seeing it, talking with people, um, we're so isolated and sheltered here in the States that we really don't have a conception of what people go through. Can you imagine living in a war-torn country for four or five years and then making that trip across the water? And then now there are 40, 45 to 50,000 refugees who are stuck in Greece. They can't go across the border. Um, we don't know what's going to happen to, to those refugees, the ones that I worked with. Um, and one of the things I really learned um, was that these refugees, we put the name or label of refugees because it's very convenient to do so, but when you peel away that layer, they're human beings, just like you and I are. And I saw that firsthand. Um, they're exactly like us. 
They want safety. They want love. They want their children to grow up safe, successful. They have the same needs and desires as we do. Um, and I can't stress that enough because the media has done, I think, a very poor job of portraying people from the Mideast, Arab people. Um, they, they tend to give you this stereotypical picture. And what I saw was totally, totally different. They, they, wouldn't, they, were, they were just like, like me in terms, and many of the refugees that, that I encountered were from middle class, um, Syria, some of the countries. They had to have money to be able to pay the smugglers and make their way across to Europe. The ones who don't have the money are the ones who are stuck in Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, etc. Um, but these people are professional people, teachers, shop owners, educated um, individuals, very, very dignified, very kind, very warm, um, people that I was very, very honored to have been associated with during the short period of time I was there. So I guess what I would just say in closing is that um, it's not the large actions. You know, I think my trip was kind of interesting in that first week or so I spent a lot of time trying to help as many people as I could. And then a little shift occurred where I started, I met Khalid and Anas and several other people and started forming relationships. And it's the it's the small acts of kindness that make the difference with one individual. Just helping fix a tire or whatever. And who knows what a little act of kindness, how it ripples out or what it does to a person, how it influences that person to help somebody else. And that's what I took encouragement from. I couldn't, you know, as one person, you can't solve the problem of the refugees, but you can do one little thing for someone else. And the message I took was, you know, it doesn't have to be the refugees. We can do one little act of kindness toward a homeless person or someone who's sick or someone who's suffering. Um, and, 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 and that's what I think is what, what I learned from this, from this trip that I hope to continue with um, you know, in, my, in my experience in my life. So I know I've gone over time. Um, oh, by the way, uh, on the back table, I have a handout there with, I am giving another talk on the 23rd of May in Katadi, and it's gonna be much more extensive than this. I have a lot more photographs, videos, stories, and so on. Um, so if you're interested, please come to that presentation. And the link is also on there to my blog. For those of you who didn't get a chance to read the blog, uh, you can go online and read in more detail some of my experiences. But um, um, thank you very much for this opportunity to, to share this experience with you. And I hope it opens your eyes to 
what the refugees are going through, um, and that you can, you know, I'm not asking for you to go over to Greece or to donate money or whatever. I think just keeping them in your hearts, in your thoughts, in your prayers, your, your metta meditation, I, I think is, is more than enough. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, John. And should we just close with a dedication? Please do that. Yeah. Um, so may the, may the benefit of our morning together, our practice, our hearing of these words, uh, may, this, may the benefit ripple out in the ways that John was describing. May kindness ripple out in all of our lives in mysterious ways at times. And may we offer the benefits of, uh, of the morning to all those in our lives so that it ripples out ultimately to all beings. Thank you very much, John. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.